God, we are thankful for uh, this time in which we get to sit under your word. God, we want to position our souls under the water flow of your grace today and just receive what you have for us. God, we pray that your word would not come back void, but that you would accomplish your purpose. And God, I ask that you would shock us and stun us with how incredible your love is for us. God, I pray that we'd walk out of this room with our hearts so filled with your love for us that it spills out and overflows to the people around us. So God, would you teach us what it means to love like you love us? We need your help, so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been to, uh, we've been through uh, the book of First John over the last uh, couple of weeks, um, and we've been walking through this book looking for different tests or different signs uh, to determine uh, if we really are uh, saved. And we're getting this whole purpose, this whole drive in this book, really from John's thesis statement from chapter 5, verse 13. John says, this is, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. So John shares with us at the end of the book why he's writing this whole letter. He wants us to have confidence to know if we are saved. And so we've been walking through just uh, looking for different signposts to determine if we are truly followers of Jesus. Now we get to chapter 4, brings us to another signpost. Here it is for us today, that loving others is proof that you know God. Loving others is proof that you know God. Very simple, but the central command in this passage is a drive for us to love others. I'm sure if we had John uh, up here on stage with us, and we said, John, if you could ask us one question, what would it be? I'm sure John would ask us some sort of question related to this. He would say, when the world looks at the church, when the world looks at maybe College Park Church, do they see a love that can only be explained by the supernatural work of God? I'm sure he'd ask some sort of question to get at, not if we are loving one another, but if our love is being generated and empowered by God himself. See, we can love to a certain degree. We've got our own strengths and abilities and resources, but the kind of love that John is calling us to this morning is a love that's being generated by the presence and the power of God. I don't know about you, but I long to love like that. Like I long to grow in my love for one another, to, to not rely on my own strength and my own resources or how I feel in the moment. But I want to love people that's truly empowered by God himself. And that's really what this passage is all about. It's all about being so deeply transformed by the love of God within that we live the supernatural love of God out. So four aspects I want us to see about love as we walk uh, through this passage. Here's number one for us. That loving others is proof. Loving others is is proof. When you read verse 7, verse 7 really forms as kind of the summary statement of our passage this morning. He basically packs in all of the key ideas in this first verse, but it's that last phrase in verse 7 that shows us something very important about loving others. That John basically says that loving others is proof that you have been born of God and that you know God. 
that loving others is perhaps the most distinguishing characteristic of what it means to be an authentic follower of Jesus. He says, you can know if you know God by your love for others. Now remember, this concept of knowing God for John is not just an intellectual or mystical awareness of God. He's not referring to having the facts about God or some type of knowledge about God. But when he talks about knowing God, John is saying it's the type of knowledge in which you center your entire life around. It's the type of knowledge that impacts and changes every arena of your life. It's the kind of knowledge that I would say was the difference between the disciple of Peter and the disciple Judas. That Peter denied Jesus three times, Judas uh, betrayed Jesus, and yet it was Peter who ended up repenting and becoming one of the leaders in the early church. Judas, on the other hand, fell away and ended up committing suicide. Now, both disciples spent over three years with Jesus. Both of them knew Jesus. They had facts about Jesus, but I believe it was Peter who had the type of knowledge of Jesus that John is getting at. And one of the most disturbing passages in the Bible, I would say, the the passage that kind of makes me shake when I read it and when I study it, is Matthew chapter 7. At Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus is, is teaching, this is a sermon on the mount, and he says some words here that are absolutely sobering. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In this passage, Jesus says that there will be people who come up to him on that last day and say, Jesus, let me into heaven. Look at all of the good things that I've done for you. Look at all the religious things that I've done. And Jesus will respond to them and say, away from me, I never knew you. He's talking about that knowledge that I think John is getting at, the the knowledge of knowing God and being known by God. I think what's so disturbing about that passage is not just the fact that Jesus is turning away people from heaven, but it's the way that he describes those people and then turns them away from heaven. I mean, that list is unbelievable. That's an impressive list, the casting out demons the prophesying, the doing many mighty works, the the healings in Jesus' name, and yet Jesus is pointing out, that's not proof for the fact that you actually know me. For many of us, we might point to other religious activities and, and different things related to ministry as proof that we know God and that we love God. And yet, there is one proof, there is one objective evidence that Jesus emphasized time and time again in his ministry that is proof that you actually do know God and that you actually love God. And it comes through John chapter 13, verse 35. That Jesus says this to his disciples. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. Okay, now you can see that you can almost sense the disciples leaning in, like whipping out their paper and pen, seeing what they can write down here. He says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the evidence. 
Like, that's the proof, that's the distinguishing characteristic of someone who is an authentic follower of Jesus, and yet it sounds so simple. It it sounds not as glamorous as the casting out demons and the prophesying, and yet that's what makes it so difficult, isn't it? Like, it's so ordinary, it's so daily, this loving others. Furthermore, it seems like Jesus makes an inseparable connection between our love for God and our love for others. He says in Matthew chapter 22, when uh, someone came up to him and asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And then he gives him a second one. He says, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's a monumental statement by Jesus. Like Jesus not only puts on the same level a love for God and a love for others, but Jesus basically says, you can throw out the Ten Commandments and the 600 plus commands in the Mosaic Law if you follow these two, love God and love others. And of course, John is saying here that your love for God is seen and demonstrated in your love for other people. See, it feels like Jesus and John in verse 7 is pushing back on the individuals who claim to be close to God, who claim to be so passionate about God, and yet treat the other, treats the other people around them poorly. It seems like John is trying to show the, the contradiction in the person's life who claims to be so close to the Lord, memorizing Scripture, doing their devotions, and yet spends most of their time yelling at their spouse and yelling at their kids. See, John is trying to connect for us that to be close to God is to love others well. Like, I just want to pause here for a moment and just ask you the question, would you characterize your life as being full of love? Like, would the people closest to you, would they describe you as a loving person? Like, before you answer that question so quickly, I just kind of want to kind of play a game this morning and, and kind of put our definition of love to the test by looking at what the scriptures have to say about love. That the love passage that we all know and, and love is 1 Corinthians 13. This is what the scriptures say about love, that love is patience, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, that love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Look, is that, is that you today? Maybe to make it more personal, how about we play this game? How about try to exchange the word love for your name and see if it's still accurate. Here, I took out the word love and just put a blank, but just enter your name in there and see if it's still accurate. So, you know, for me, when I do this, Chris is patient, Chris is kind, Chris does not envy, Chris, like, you get into some of these, and, and man, I'm thinking about my own life, thinking, is that, am I consistently like that? Do I love like that? See, John's point here is how we love others, and 
particularly how we love Christians, because that's the one another in verse 7. How we love Christians reveals if we love God and if we really know God. That our love for each other is an indicator of the place God is holding in our hearts. And so if that's true, which I believe it is, then what does it mean to love others well? What, what kind of love are we talking about? The, the culture that we live in tries to take this word and kind of redefine it in so many other ways. And so what does love actually mean according to John? Well, here, let me point out for us what John would say is the source of love in verses 7 and 8. That In verse 7, John tells us that love is from God. And then in verse 8, he says that God is love. And so for John here, God and love are clearly not at odds. But what John means here when he says that love is from God, he's not saying that love is from God in the same way that letters are from a mailman. But what he's saying here, that love is from God in the same way that heat is from fire or light is from the sun. That love belongs to God's nature. It's, it's woven into what he is. It's part of what it means to be God. What John means here is that there is something about God's nature that makes love a necessary part of it. And so look, love is not just something that God does, but but love is something that God is. The sun gives light because it is light, and fire gives off heat because it is heat. God is love. I like how John Piper tries to Uh, describe and define this phrase here. He says this, he says, in a word, I think it means something like God's absolute fullness of life and truth and beauty and goodness and all other perfections is such that he is not only self-sufficient, but also in his very nature overflowing. That God is so absolute, so perfect, so complete, so full, so inexhaustibly resourceful, so joyful, that he is by nature a giver, a worker for others, a helper, a protector. That what it means to be God is to be full enough always to overflow and never to need, never murmur, never pout. That God is love. Look, this helps explain why loving others is proof that you actually know God simply because God is uh, love. And so when John uses that phrase, the fact that God is love, he's not just throwing down a theological truth bomb and walking away with no purpose. But John is showing us some theology about who God is with the aim of trying to impact how we live our lives. And we've seen John do this all throughout this letter. In chapter 1, he talks about God being light. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. He's not just supplying a, a random truth about who God is, but his aim has to do with our ethics, that he wants us to now not walk in darkness, but to walk in light because God is light. Well, John is doing that here again. He's saying, God is love, therefore, you should love others. So this is not just something that should be put on a Hallmark card, but it should change the way that we love and we interact other people. That because the source of love is God himself, it is impossible to truly love others without being connected to God. I think this speaks into the issue of what separates Christian love from non-Christian love. 
Like, if you're like me, you probably know unbelievers who love really well, who at times kind of feels like they love others better than some Christians that I know. And that's partly the case because of something that we call uh, common grace, that all people have been made in the image of God, therefore have the capacity to love others. But the idea that God is love, that love comes from God, and if you're a true believer, you have God living inside of you, means that there should be something that distinguishes Christian love from, un- from non-Christian love. And there are all kinds of differences, but one in particular, I think, comes down to the motives. That the motive for why a Christian should love others is different than why non-Christians love other people. That for us, we don't love in order to promote ourselves, in order for us to be self-seeking, but we love others in order to glorify God and to shine a spotlight on who God actually is. That for us, the reason why we love is because we want to put God on display for other people to see. That we are trying to make the, the invisible God visible in how we love other people. Like, I think that's why in verse 12, John says that no one has ever seen God. Like, it's so random how he just kind of drops that in there. But notice what comes before that phrase and what comes after that phrase. Both phrases have to do with loving one another. It's almost like John is saying that as we love one another, we can actually see what God is like, and the watching world can see what God is like as we love one another well. Look, the, the way that we love others needs to be impacted by the fact that God is love and is the source of love. That when we know God truly, we love others genuinely. And so love comes from God. The next thing that I want us to see about love from this passage is the demonstration of love in verses 9 through 11. This is also really helpful in understanding why love for others is proof that we know God Verses 9 through 11, John spells out for us what it means that love actually comes from God. When you read verses 9 through 11, like it's really hard to read those quickly. Like these verses are so beautiful about God's love for the world and what he has done to demonstrate his love for the world. John says that God showed his great love for us by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. Verse 10 says it wasn't because We love God, but it's because God loved us and showed us by sending Jesus to the cross. Look, we we look to the cross, and we as Christians, we make such a big deal about the cross of Jesus because the cross is the epicenter of God's love. It is the apex of God's love. That the cross is the irrefutable proof that God is for us and not against us. The cross is... It's kind of like this great canvas that God puts the masterpiece of his love upon and it screams out to the world, I love you. That we look to the cross to, to know what does God think about us? How does God feel towards us? What, what's his disposition towards his people? Does God stand up there in heaven with his arms crossed, frowning at us, disappointed with us? No, we we look to the cross to see that God's love is unending and it is perfect and it is coming after us, pursuing us with all that he is. And the way that 
he loved God, that, that he loved us and demonstrated his love for us. Look, it wasn't when we were so cleaned up. It wasn't when we were at our best. It wasn't when we were pursuing godliness. It wasn't when we were seeking after the things of God. No, Scripture says that God demonstrated his love for us when we were at our worst. Romans 5.8 says, while we were still sinners, that's when Christ died for us. Look, the only thing that we had to offer God was our own wretchedness, our own rebellious hearts. And it was in that moment that God decided to put on display his great love for us. Look, what that means is that God's love doesn't change. It doesn't change upon your performance. It doesn't change upon his mood up in heaven. We don't follow a God who, who has these mood swings where he loves us, he doesn't love us. He, do, he doesn't go back and forth. No, his love for us is perfect and it is unending. I love the hymn that we sang earlier today. Those lyrics are just so rich. They are so instructive in helping us understand how God loves us and paints a beautiful picture. Let me just read a couple of the lyrics. It says, Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forever endure, the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the whole contain the scroll, though stretched from sky to sky. Isn't that rich? Isn't that so good? Like, like understanding that there is no end to God. He says God's love is matchless. Like we can't exhaust, we cannot exaggerate how much God loves us and how much God loves the world. That when God looks at you and pours out his love upon you, he doesn't wish that you were someone else. He knows exactly who you are. He knows the depths of your heart. He knows all the things that you've done, and he loves you the same. But these verses in 9 through 11, they're, I think they're meant to move us. I don't think they're meant to just fill us with head knowledge and to have kind of more theology, but they're meant to do something within us. I think when we read these and we study these and we just slow down for a moment and we think about how much God loves us, they're meant to fill us with such an awe and such a worship towards him. It leaves us speechless and astonished that the God of the universe who knows all of us and knows all of our secrets and yet loves us the same. That his love for us is meant to motivate us and to push us towards loving others. I shared this in the first service, so I'll share it here. But uh, Lindsay and I, we, uh, when we got engaged, we've kind of got this running joke that that's when her love for me actually started to grow and develop. Like she kind of liked me and I was just like pursuing after her throughout our dating experience. But once I put a ring on her finger, that's when her uh, affections for me actually started to grow. Now, when we um, were dating and kind of towards the last uh, year of college, Lindsay graduated early and started to work in Dayton, Ohio, which was about 45, 50 minutes from Cedarville University, where I was finishing up my last couple of classes. And so we did the whole, like, kind of short, long distance, stand of 45 minutes is nothing. But man, when you're in college, you just, you just miss the person you love. So it was hard for us to spend all weekend together and then go throughout the week, and she would be at work and I'd be at classes. 
And one of the, the last things that I wanted for Lindsay when we were apart throughout the week was to have her wonder about my love and about my commitment to her. Like, I did not want her to doubt for a moment that I was going to marry her, that I was pursuing her and committed to her. I knew that if she doubted that, that would impact how she lived, that maybe she'd open herself up to other suitors to, uh, to advance and, and to maybe come in and kind of steal the, the woman that I loved. And so throughout our engagement, I not only told her that I loved her, but I wanted to demonstrate my love to her in countless ways. Now, one of the biggest ways that I did this was I bought a ring, and I put a ring, a ring on her finger, and, and, and we got engaged. And it was in that moment, almost like a switch went off in her, that her affections and her love for me actually grew. So it was in that moment when we got engaged that she had a type of security and assurance like never before, and it impacted her desires for me. Now, here's Here's the point that John is trying to make in verses 9 through 11, that real love for God and for others grows in the soil of security. That John, with these verses 9 through 11, he is trying to show us that God has given us the ultimate security, the ultimate assurance of his love in order for our affections for him and for others to grow and to expound. And he did this in a much greater way than putting a ring on our fingers. He did this by putting his own son on a cross. Look, because verses 9 through 11 are true and because they are glorious, love for God and for others begins to grow. Verse 11 actually shows us the motivation for why we should love others. That if God has loved us in this great way, we ought to love one another. See, God's demonstration of his love leads us to implementation of loving those around us. That we are only able to love him and those around us because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. And so God demonstrating his love by putting it into action also shows us that love without action is not really love at all. Like love is not a feeling, it's not an emotion. Love is a verb. Like, love demands that we exercise our will, whether we feel like it or not. I just want to remind us again that your feelings might be real, your feelings might be be genuine, but they cannot be authoritative in, in your life. They cannot dictate how you love others. You cannot have your emotions imprison you in the jail cell of inactivity. You cannot wrestle with thinking, oh, I don't feel like loving the people around me, so I don't want to love because that's fake. That's being phony. That's being disingenuous. Look, that's that's not being fake. That's actually being faithful, that God calls us to loving others in word and deed, to put our love into action. And so because God has demonstrated his love in action, we are to do the same. And so we see the demonstration of love. Now, the last thing that I want us to see this morning, number four, is the power to love. The power to love. Look, I don't know about you, but like reading and studying this passage and seeing the call to love others as God has loved us, like left me feeling so inadequate, like so overwhelmed by 
like this gap in my life between what God is calling me to and just how inconsistent I can be in loving others. Like, I don't know if you felt the same way as we're kind of walking through this, thinking about different relationships or different areas of your life in which you fall short of loving others, and you think, man, I'm not very good at this. I just want to encourage us this morning that if you feel that way, like, that's actually the beginning of what it means to love others. Like, feeling that inadequacy opens yourself up to actually relying on the presence and the power of God within you to help us love others. See, it's when you understand that, yes, there is a gap between my resources, between my own strength, my own capacity to love, and I need something beyond me, bigger than me, to help me actually fulfill this. That's actually a really good sign in your life. See, in verses 12 through 13, John talks about this idea of abiding in God of God living in us, God abiding even in us as being the key to what it means to love others. That we don't love others on our own strength, but as I shared in the beginning with that question, that the world, the world looked at the church, does it see a, a love that can only be explained by the supernatural work of God? It's because God is abiding in the people of the church. And so what does it mean to abide? Well, the concept of abiding in God and God abiding in us is a popular theme throughout the book of 1 John. That this Greek word for abide literally means to remain in, to continue in a certain state or condition, to stay in something. This is like a, a favorite word of the Apostle John. Out of the 118 times the New Testament uses abide, 67 of those occurrences is used by John himself. John uses this word all throughout our letter. And if you ask John, hey, John, summarize the, the Christian life for me in one phrase, he would say, abide in Christ. This phrase is comparable to the Apostle Paul and his phrase, be in Christ. So this is the essence of the Christian life. It means to have a type of relationship with God that is continual, that is connected and is dependent upon Jesus. What makes this word special and unique, as opposed to hoping in God or believing in God, is the, the continual implication of remaining and living in God. That you never kind of turn off living the Christian life out. You don't have this on and off switch, but abiding in God is this moment-to-moment -moment awareness of the presence and the power of God living within you and allowing him to live actually through you. And I think the reason why this is so important is because when you analyze and kind of look at your own life and the way that you love others, even if you look at 1 Corinthians 13 and you replace the word love with your own name, we all fall short of that. Like we, we all, like we, we don't love perfectly. And yet the beauty of what it means to abide in Christ means that there is a name. If you took the word love out and you put this person's name in, would actually fulfill and complete 1 Corinthians 13, and his name is Jesus. Like Jesus perfectly fulfills 1 Corinthians 13. Jesus never falls short of what it means to love. He loves perfectly. And because that is true, that means when we abide in Christ, 
his love and his power comes in and through us and impacts the people around us. Look at 1 Corinthians 13, and, and I took out the word love and put Jesus in here. It says, Jesus is patient, Jesus is kind, Jesus does not envy, Jesus does not boast, Jesus is not proud, Jesus does not dishonor others, Jesus is not self-seeking, Jesus is not easily angered, Jesus keeps no record of wrongs, Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, he always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. But the beauty of this passage, the beauty of what it means to abide, means that even though we can't, he can. And as we cry out for help, he lives and, and empowers us to actually love the way that we should. Look, abiding in God begins when our self-sufficiency ends and we cry out to him on a moment-to-moment -moment basis. Look at verse 12, when John says that his love is perfected in us, he is saying that when we love others, God's love for us reaches its full effect and its full expression. Your life was, was never meant to be a cul-de-sac for God's love. It was meant to be a conduit by which his love goes in and through you. Look, when that takes place, that's what it, what it means to abide in him. And that is proof that you are a Christian. So look, as we close this morning, I just want us to do kind of a, a love audit today, kind of a, an inspection on how it is that, that you are living out this central command to love others. And so this morning, I just want to do that by walking through four different questions about what it means to love. Here's number one. Is your love sincere? Is it sincere? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, verse 9, that our love must be sincere and genuine. Is that true of you this morning? Or do you find yourself when you're loving to have maybe hidden motives or an agenda attached to it? Do you love maybe in order to be seen by others or what you get in return? Is your love sincere? Number two, is your love consistent? Is it consistent? Or is your love kind of moody? Is your love dependent on the weather outside or how well things are going at work? Look, we all can love when we feel like it, but it's in those moments in which we choose to love that we see the evidence of God working within us. If you find yourself loving others inconsistently or it kind of ebbs and flows, that's probably because you're missing out on what it means to abide in God. But consistent love, it will, it will cost you. It, it's inconvenient to love on other terms. Number three, is your love earnest? Is it earnest? Look, loving uh, someone half-heartedly is not only missing the mark of Christian love, but that person can feel it and sense it when your love is half-hearted. Like there's a difference between seeking opportunities to love and being asked to love. Like when you prioritize loving others instead of promoting oneself, it has the ability to change the environment that you're in. Like when you're thinking to yourself, how can I love others better? That changes the environment that you're in. That's the kind of love that, that changes families and changes workplaces and changes small groups and changes neighborhoods and changes uh, churches even. 
Like when you think to yourself, no matter what room you're in, no matter what conversation you're in, my goal is to help these people feel love and to know that they're loved, that changes the environment that you're in. Like every family meal, every car ride, every phone conversation, every meeting, making sure that your love is earnest and that you're on mission to make sure other people feel loved around you. And the last question here, is your love for others driven by your love for God? If we love God most, we will love others best. That our love for others really will only go as far as our love for the Lord. So as you're hearing kind of this push and this uh, this command from John to love others, be sure that you're still cultivating that intimacy with the Lord so that his love and his power comes and oozes through you, touching the people around you. Look, as we close, I just want to maybe challenge you with one, one last thing. just want to challenge you that on the car ride home today or maybe at lunch or maybe you need to pick up the phone and, and call somebody, but ask the person next to you, hey, what is one thing that I can do to love you better? That maybe you need to ask a family member or a spouse or maybe your own child or, uh, or a friend or a roommate. Ask them, how can I love you better? And just sit back and listen. Don't try to uh, blame shift or explain anything. Just, just be silent and write it down and ask the Lord to help you. That our love for others is not only the right thing to do, but it is an objective proof that you have been saved by God pray together. God, we thank you for the power of your word and the example that John lays out for us of, of what it means to love others, the fact that you have first loved us. God, we thank you that you have called the church to be a, a beacon of light. You call us to be a city on a hill. And God, so much of that has to do with how well we're loving one another. So God, we desperately need your help, God, because we failed this over and over again. God, our love is, is moody at times. It's dependent on other factors. It's inconsistent. It's insincere. So God, we, we need your help. God, we want to show a picture of you to the world that is accurate. God, we want to show people that our love for you is driven by the reality that you live in and through us. And so God, help us to be that kind of church, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.